You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Let me put it this way. This is how much I think about sex. Draw a number line with zero is you never think about sex and 10 is it's all you think about and while you're drawing the line, I am thinking about sex. Brush up against me in the hall at school, any girl I am thinking of, the way she smells walking behind her up the ugly staircase, trying to keep it together while my whole body rattles like a squirrel in a tin can. To couple up with them, To capture their whole bodies under a blanket with enough light to see the pleasure of what we are doing, marinated with it, the snap and the sigh of longing to be inside all of her. It's a story that keeps telling itself to me, my own crackling need in this world lit only by girls who might kiss me, like a flower, like a flytrap, the delicious sex we would have if we weren't in the idiotic marathon of going to class. Oh good, calculus, this will clear everything up. Daniel Handler writes under the pen name Lemony Snicket, and there his work includes a series of unfortunate events and all the wrong questions. As Daniel Handler, his work includes the basic eight adverbs, We Are Pirates. He's written movies, Rick and Kill the Poor. He's written songs for the Magnetic Fields and the Gothic Archies. His new book is All the Dirty Parts. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. It is a delight to be here. This book is written to rectify a very specific problem uh, that exists in America today. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> which is, which... I didn't know that. I can't wait to hear what problem I'm rectifying. <laughs> well, That's it's... so rarely said of me that I'm rectifying a major problem in America. <laughs> well, it starts at the top, shall we say. <laughs> Most things do. Uh, the boys aren't reading. Men are less likely to read than women. What the heck is going on? And What does this book address that every other book that boys don't want to read doesn't? Well, part of the birth of this book is that I was asked to give a speech on precisely that. As a man who writes books for children and books for children that many young men are reading, um, I was asked if I might give a speech on encouraging young men to read because there is a gender discrepancy Uh, particularly in young people, um, in terms of reading. So I have been asked to give these kinds of speeches and bits of advice about getting boys to read all the time. And I'm kind of the last person you should ask, because I was an obsessive and voracious reader as a boy. And so I don't really have any clue as to what would lure people into reading, because I was lured before I remember it. Um... But nonetheless, you know, they ask you to give a speech, so you say okay, in my experience. And I didn't know what to say at this speech. And coincidentally, my mother was cleaning out the house, and she gave me a stack of books. She said, oh, these books were in your room. They're not my books. They're your books. You're in your 40s now. You have to keep your books at your house. And she gave them to me. And they were many of my favorite novels from about age 17 to about age, I don't know, 20, 21. And I reread them all in a row. I was a very pretentious teenager. I still am, except I'm not a teenager anymore. (laughs) And so I was reading very serious literature, or literature anyway that I thought was very serious. And 
I reread all these uh, novels for the most part in a row, and they were all filthy. <laughs> really? What, all of them. What, what do you include in such? Uh, the in Mambo such... Kings play Songs of Love. Okay. Uh, the Unbearable Lightness of Being. Um, Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet. Oh, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. Oh, boy. Even uh, like Paul Oster's New York Trilogy, which I remembered <laughs> as an abstract detective story, I did not remember that has a lot of sex in it. Uh-huh. And these books weren't my pornography or anything. They mm-hmm. were just what I liked to read. And what I liked to read had sex in it. And I began to think about literature that it was being offered for uh, young uh, adolescent boys um, and that YA literature, as it is called now, um, is so often completely devoid of sex. And not only devoid of sex, but devoid of sex in situations in, w- in which sex is occurring. There are so often teenage romances, and they are so often kind of genre uh, uh, pieces in which, if it were for adults, there would be sex then. You know, a thriller where the spy and the girl the spy has rescued are spend the night in a cabin as they wait for the approach of the villain. If this were a movie, that's when they would have sex, and in the book, they wouldn't, and of course, are, are don't even think about it. And I began to think... So we know that there's a topic in which we know boys are interested. Not all boys, not just boys. There's also a gender discrepancy, equally complicated, about reading. And there's also literature that we are offering that we're wondering why boys don't pick up and read that is devoid of the thing that we know boys are interested in. And that was one of the uh, seeds that was planted that sprouted up to form the grove that is this novel. (laughs) I had to... Work my metaphor very quickly there at the end of that sentence. That was <laughs> that was some fine work, I have to yeah. say. Now, I don't know if this was rectifying a major problem in America, and neither was the whole book at all written under the spell of we must do something for young people, but it was just something that I noticed. Mm-hmm. And so in that speech, I actually started the speech by reading a long, filthy pap- passage from the Mongbo King's play Songs of Love without any introduction. <laughs> That must have turned your audience right upside down. Well, it was all librarians, and they were very concerned. They had no idea what was going on. And then when I said, this is from a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, an immigration story, a beautiful novel. If if 14-year-old boys were picking up Oscar Wales's Pulitzer Prize-winning The Mambo King's Play Songs of Love, we would be dancing in the streets. And they should, but we won't give it to them because it has sex in it. You know, it struck me when you're talking about YA— Young adults are, as we discover in this book about young adults, most the majority of their brain power is devoted to thinking about sex. Yet a YA book you can pick up and be guaranteed there will be no sex in that book. Yeah. And that's just insane. Yeah, that's quite insane. I mean, I was, I've judged, um, different uh, awards for young people's literature. So I often have occasion to read, you know, 300 novels <laughs> that are designed for teenagers. And there are countless scenes where they're finally alone in the house and they are watching a movie on the sofa and they kiss a little bit and they stop. Two 18-year-olds. <laughs> and I think to myself, either I apparently grew up in a sex-crazed culture which is ended... Or I think these books are being dishonest. And the more young people I have met and talked to and heard about, the more I knew that it was not the former, but it was the latter. Well, I, one of the things I thought as I read this book and, and was my own youth, 
I loved going to the liquor store where they had the spin rack with every detective novel that had some racy cover on it. Right. I would just be glued to those novels. So, and, and when we went to the houseboat up in the 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 saloons where we'd stay, spend our summers, you know, the it, the insurance agent who worked and would leave those books around, and I just like spend my time. It oh, sounds like you were raised really? by Mickey Spillane. What is this? Uh, yeah, we yeah. stopped by a liquor store, picked up some detective novels, and headed out to the houseboat. <laughs> I've never heard of a childhood like this. <laughs> it was, yeah, Mickey Spillane. Why weren't you in school? What's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, that's a question that uh, many people have asked and few have had the time to answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I realize we're limited for time here on the show, so maybe we should move on. Uh, this book tells the story of Cole and as I read it, I felt like I was jumping into a cold, quick-moving stream. Hmm. You so absolutely captured uh, the the mind churn of a teenager. And what interested me was I'm at the same time I'm reading a book about why Buddhism is true, hmm. and the way you captured the thoughts of the boy in this book really made me think about the way Buddhism. Uh, encourages us to observe our thoughts as they arise, and it's like as if any thought about any subject might jump over to the surface of our mind, which is consciousness, and then it comes up and oh, I'm hungry, oh, yes. I've got a bill to pay. And in your book, it's just like schools of flying fish. I must mate. I must mate. <laughs> I must mate. Um. Well, I well the book is. As the title would indicate, All the Dirty Parts is a sifting of this boy's consciousness to be the times that he's thinking about sex and the times that he's having sex and um, exactly the parts that are missing from much literature and storytelling <laughs> about young people. Um, and it's also in very short chapters. Um, there's some books I really admire that are in short chapters. Uh, Mary Robeson's Why Did I Ever is kind of the... Uh, granddaddy of them, um, but the but I was also intrigued by that notion just structurally that um, the way so many young people are reading and communicating with each other is in short verses and texts and Twitter and not long <laughs> letters. And, we live in a world delimited by one hundred and forty characters. Uh, yes, <laughs> often right. Frightening. I, um, so. Uh, yes, which uh, I, I'm not the first nor the last novelist to want to make a pun on 140 characters. Every novelist I know has said, I should write a book with 140 characters in it. Um, but the idea of uh, very brief chapters and these glimpses of sexual life seem to me the right structure to tackle the story. And Cole is a boy who has sex on the brain a lot. He consumes a lot of pornography, and he sleeps with as many girls as he is are willing to sleep with him, willing being a kind of elastic uh, and manipulated term as it is uh, in relationships between young people. And um, he, uh, when we meet him, he is kind of mid-spree. And <laughs> when the spree uh, settles down a little bit, he uh, hangs out with his best friend with whom he shares many details of his erotic life. And they end up in a relationship, which uh, the term for currently is heteroflexible. For centuries, there was no term for it whatsoever. <laughs> and now there's been, in recent years, maybe 18 or 19 terms for it. Uh, and then he meets a girl. He meets a girl who's uh, 
uh, attitude toward sex and whose hunger for sex matches his own, which seems like paradise at first and then ends up being much more emotionally complicated. Such as high school. Uh, I think one of the things I, I love about this book is that it puts us, at first, we are in a world where almost story doesn't exist, in a sense, because your brain is just churning out desire so fast, you almost have no um, ability to grab onto a past, a present, or a future, or anything. And you do such a wonderful job at slyly slipping in story. Little elements start to emerge. And I think that's really an amazing piece of work. Thank you. Was Did you have to, like, did this novel have to be, like, uh, filleted, so to speak? Um, it was, I would say it was constantly being trimmed. Mm-hmm. Um, which, is, in general, is how I try to approach all of my work, um, I think there are hardly any novels which are too short, and there are so many which are too long. And so whenever I'm working on a draft of a book and I say, oh, I could cut these five pages, it's very hard to unthink that thought. As soon as I think it, I think, oh, I don't have to have any of this at all. And every so often I'll say, oh, no, wait, there's that one tiny thing that happens here, but let's put that over here. It's almost impossible for me once I realize something can be trimmed not to trim it because I think I, uh, that, that the way a book moves like that kind of quicksilver is so magical and that oftentimes it, that's what can kill a novel for you. It isn't even that it isn't interesting or isn't written well. It's just that it's slow. Mm-hmm. You can think to yourself, I've been reading this novel for however many days or however many hours. <laughs> I'm on page 225, and there's about four things that have happened. This is not <laughs> going well. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot of trimming. I wrote it on uh, index cards. Um, really? So first I had to put them in order. First I had to write them and put them in order. And then I had to, once they were in some kind of order, see all these things that were redundant. So You know, it. it, it I was so interested as I read this by how you could take all the things that are generally like, you take all the scenes that are generally left out of the books. Right. <laughs> and make that the book, which seems very, very difficult. Did you find yourself really straining to write this, or did you just like jump in that stream and say, I'm going to swim until I fall off the cliff? Uh, I had a lot of fun writing it, uh-huh. particularly the first draft where it was just, I would just write something and it would, I would put it on an index card and I would think, moving right along to the next index card. And, um, because it's all so filthy. Yeah. And then I would read them, uh, over to myself and, um, you might see me in some of the finer cafes here in San Francisco with my head down on the table in mortification at the ones that were really terrible. And then I read some to my wife and she would inform me uh that there are even more that were mortifying of which i was previously unaware and then i just started to put it in order but um i mean i work uh hard on my writing and i certainly experience very a lot of challenges there but i'm delighted with my job and i'm um i don't have much patience actually for uh kind of suffering as writing (laughs) because um if you're suffering, you don't have to write if you don't want to. <laughs> no, no. There, yeah. are, there are plenty of other jobs that will pay far better and more regularly. Well, almost any job, really. <laughs> I mean, unless you're trying to be a you know yodeler or something. 
And um, there are many writers of my acquaintance for whom writing is very hard. And I always think to myself, you should not be a writer. You've <laughs> dug yourself into a pit of which you'll never get out. <laughs> That's the gig is writing. I, one of the things I think that was so, so wonderful in this book is the way it uh, – this book is – the prose is hypnotic. So Thank you. it lulls us into the sense of – we think we know where we're going. We think we know him. But what we what we begin to realize is that he does not yet know himself. He is young. Yes. And this is this book perfectly captures a moment when that worm turns and a little bit of that youth is shed away. I think that's so beautifully done and not a difficult. I mean that's difficult to do. Uh thank you. I guess it's difficult. Um, I, I mean, those moments are so powerful in life, those mm -hmm. sudden epiphanies and, um, in so much of literature, we're prepared for an epiphany and that's not how they happen in my experience or in the experiences of <laughs> any other person who's ever told me the story of an epiphany and, um, no kitchen window. Damn it. <laughs> I, right. Or no, um, you know, it was a, exactly a year after something, something. And now I've realized that's thing. It's more like I was making something in the blender and then it spilled. And then I went to get paper towels and I was out of them, but I had this dripping from my arm so I couldn't open the drawer. And then I thought to myself, and that's what I think is so beautiful about, uh, life and what I try to, uh, imitate in literature. I also started in poetry. And mm -hmm. that's part of the trick of poetry, I think, is the way in which something can be surprising. You, 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 when you're writing poetry, uh, what you're learning often is where do you break the line? Where do you put this? Where, what structure are you using that's going to bring the su something surprising? And um, so I think that carried over into my prose career. Well, this there's there's quite a bit of poetry in this book in terms of just the way it's written in the way the brevity that you bring and, and the, the i think i guess the power of of the uh momentum this is a this is a book that like fires off like a rocket uh thank you well it it i can't imagine you'd w what circumstances would call for a slow paced <laughs> book about teen male sexuality <laughs> no no However, as anyone who's partnered up with a teen boy, <laughs> hopefully when you are not an adult, I will hastily add, uh, has learned that it's, uh, you know, uh, a quick rocket is probably the best <laughs> metaphor we can come up with. Uh, yeah, that's why they make those model rockets. They last about 35 seconds. Exactly. <laughs> um, mo many books about teen boys and experimenting sex will take the approach of introducing this to somebody who perhaps like many authors, is not does not have a lot of experience with sex and, right. and has a lot of embarrassing kind of experiences. You completely invert that formula and give us the guy who many probably writers might have thought, wow, I wish I was that guy. <laughs> and the girls wish they, they were with that guy too. Well, I think there's the, one of the ways that we keep sex safe or attempt to keep it safe in literature is precisely these kind of stereotypes that we're talking about. It's mm. bumbling, it's mm. neurotic, it's nervous, it's scared. And certainly all of us have the capacity to be that in many encounters. But many people are having sex with delight. 
uh-huh. and <laughs> perhaps less delight than they should be having it with, considering their own emotional maturity and their own behavior. But um, I get tired of the um, young man who is endlessly bumbling and nervous about sexuality just because it's happened. It's not that that's unrecognizable. It's just we've done that so many times. And I actually, when I was in high school, I read um, Catcher in the Rye, as we're all told to do in high school. And um, there is the scene where he is uh, in alone in a hotel room with a prostitute and nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And for good reason in the novel. But my reaction when I was young was, wouldn't something happen and then it probably wouldn't go well or you might feel awful afterward. But the idea that not, that you would have the presence of mind to say, this is not actually what I have in mind. I thought to myself, that was not what I would do. I would do it and then I would feel awful probably. Well, and I think that by uh, giving us Cole, uh, you give us insight into the, uh, such a great insight into the way that he sees girls in the way that they see him back. I, as I think that that kind of uh, putting us on both sides of the equation at the same time—that's a really interesting technique. Is you you uh, by inverting that character, we kind of feel both sides. We understand both perspectives. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, he's not thinking about the effect he's had on girls that he's slept with, and mm-hmm. they are. Um, heartbroken and furious at him often. And um, that's something that one sees played out among young people all the time. And usually, not always, but usually gendered that way. Mm-hmm. Usually that there was a bunch of girls saying, I can't believe he was such a pig with me. And the boy, not even knowing that people think he's a pig or if he is completely confused by why that would be. And he's got a rep. I, I, yeah. That's a nice riff in this book. Well, and the mystery, I mean, which for that part of my adolescence was not, I was not uh, like Cole. And part of the mystery was there were these boys who had a rep, but it didn't seem to stop them. Mm-hmm. And by them, I mean <laughs> girls. The girl, you know, they would say, he has a sleazeball. And then I would think, well, then maybe you shouldn't hang out with him at a party and then go upstairs <laughs> if you think he's a sleazeball. But they do. Yeah, exactly. Why don't you come over to my room and we'll read Lawrence Durrell together. Let's try that. <laughs> that never worked out too well in my experience. I did better than I thought you one would think with that approach, but not great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk about creating uh, the the relationships in this book. There are two relationships that kind of pay it, pin it down. Uh, Cole and Alex and Cole in uh, Grisaille. So, and Grisai is something of an outsider. Yeah. I mean, she uh, is new to the school mm-hmm. and in some ways carries the stereotype of kind of the exciting exchange student who's uh, more sexually experienced and less puritanical. Um, and uh, their relationship... Um, is one that at first, certainly to Cole, seems like paradise. She's very upfront uh, and aggressive sexually. She doesn't seem to have the hang-up. She doesn't seem to require the kind of faux romantic accoutrements of having a girlfriend in high school. And he's very excited by that. But we begin to see that it is um, a manifestation of 
a kind of sad pathology and a kind of loneliness that she's experiencing that is not being extinguished by having this relationship and that she's very much afraid to be vulnerable um, even as she's being sexually active and uh, and open about that. And his relationship with um, Alec, I mean, is an endlessly complicated one. I thought it was really, really fascinatingly well done. Really Well, thank you. And it's been, I mean, the book is just coming out now, so I'm just hearing from mm-hmm. the first people who are reading it. But um, uh, by and large, the... Uh, the take on that relationship from a bunch of uh, uh, queer men who I know is finally, I've never seen a book that it talks about the sex that happens between a straight boy and someone who isn't straight. Mm -hmm. And that that is the beginning of so much uh, exploration isn't even really the right word, but kind of, uh, manifestation of sexual identity that mm-hmm. so many uh, gay and bisexual and uh, uh, queer young men are having sex with men who are identifying as straight mm-hmm. and who and who will go into the world identifying as straight. I don't think we have any sense that Cole is going to grow up married to a man mm-hmm. in this book. And um, that's often very complicated and uh, emotionally fraught and it's often happening between men who are kind of friends anyway or it's it's, it's a complicated uh, way and it it's certainly the way that the fluidity uh, fluidity and um, and lack of boundaries that is that are actual people's sexual and erotic lives are you know fenced in by all of these definitions for what it is and um, as I said, heteroflexible is like the word du jour for, for what that is. But that's happening at a large rate, if any surveys are to be believed, between young men. And um, even as it becomes easier to be a young man who's queer in some way in adolescence, that that's still going on, that there's still these sexual relationships happening and that no one really knows how to categorize them and that's interesting to me and Cole doesn't know how to categorize it he spends a lot of time saying I don't know what this is that is happening and he doesn't seem to be confused about what it is when it's happening with a girl but when it's happening with a boy he doesn't know what it is and um, he finds he can't discard his friend uh, with whom he's had this sexual relationship as easy as he can discard all of his previous lovers when the new girl shows up so in some ways it's a uh, romantic triangle, but it's uh, it's the mess. It's the mess of being young and sexually active. Well, as well too, it's the mess of being young and experiencing emotions more deeply. What I, as I read this book, I felt like um, Cole was experiencing each reverberation of emotion would would go just a little bit deeper into who he was and how he decided how we would behave. And I think that kind of maturity of, wow, I can experience things, you know, that that hurt. You know, it's one thing we realize, we now know that if I hit, you know, hurt my finger or hurt or somebody hurts my feelings, it hurts in the same part of the brain. Yeah. And and that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I think um, also you have nothing to which to compare it. Exactly. You know, yeah. you don't say, "Okay, I've had my heart broken before. I know it's going to be okay." Or, you know, <laughs> I 
used to love this person and I hardly think of them anymore. So this is going to happen again too. Those things that can kind of keep our emotional cataclysms in check when you're older, right? Is that um, obviously there real tragedies can floor you, but the kind of everyday emotional tragedies, when they happen when you're 15, you have nothing to compare them to. You just think, oh my God, the world is over or the world has begun. You know, someone has mm -hmm. smiled at me or held my hand, so nothing will ever go wrong, ever. And then to, to try to contextualize that as you grow more experience is very painful. Well, also, too, it's trying to understand what healed life looks like. If you break your arm, we know we're going to put it in a cast, and by the end, it's going to look like an arm again. Yeah. What does a healed heart look like? We just don't know. Even when we're 60 years old, we don't necessarily know what it is. No. Well, I think we're all faking it, right? Yeah. We're all saying, well, that was a long time ago. It no longer upsets me, you think, except when I think about it every other day. Exactly. And this novel also really gets well to that idea of how uh, obsession works within the human mind. It's a linguistic phenomenon. What happens is we repeat the word clusters to ourselves so that we think about the in. Cole's case, he might think about different parts of the body, and those kind of word clusters roll forth. That's what I mean in the sense that this is, book is like a, a cold creek yeah, <laughs> to jump in. Um, well, it's the, um, I mean, that's what I had to edit it down to, was the singularity <laughs> of mind. I couldn't say, and now we'll have a digression about this. I had to say, oh, no, that's not what this book is about. This book is about this thing. Um and I um, I like digressionary books a lot, and I've uh, written them, but this one is of singular purpose. So that was the sharpening of it, if you will. I, I think this is a really interesting thing to place to try to find the elements of story in, in this book. Because on one hand, we all know that sex and romance are in many ways the biggest chunks of the biggest stories of our lives, the things that move us the most and mark us the most and will make us do the, the craziest, stupidest, best things we ever do. In this book, it, it's these are like the Lego pieces <laughs> of sex. You know, you put yeah. them together, you tab A, slot B, tab A, slot B. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that the... He's still in a stage where he's looking back on all his sexual activity basically mm -hmm. with the same way that he views porn. You know, it's all a memory. Mm -hmm. And even if it's kind of complicated, he's not truly inhabiting the kind of emotional weight of those memories as you do later on. You know, and that, and that when you're um, more mature and a relationship is over, you are able to kind of grieve for the emotional times or think back on the emotional times, even if you're not grieving on the emotional times. Um, but Cole is basically learning to do that as he goes in this book. Well, too, um, the import of porn in today's landscape is, I think, much, much bigger than it ever was ever before because it's so much more accessible by any human being on the planet who yeah. has a phone. And on a last and a lack of day, that's, I don't know if that's actually technically most of us, but it feels like it's most of us. Yeah. Well, um, it's, I, I mean, that difference and the, um, 
kind of quest for pornography that so many people, young pe- young people, went on uh-huh. uh, when they were younger, or the way that you would stumble across something sexually explicit just when you were curious about it, mm-hmm. um, was uh, is now gone. I mean, is now um, replaced with the ubiquity of that <laughs> kind of thing, and. That's right. I guess obviously how that will affect us, we're just going to begin to find out. But um, yeah, I have a memory uh, when I was an adolescent of realizing that people were sleeping together on the love boat. <laughs> I used to watch the love boat, <laughs> and there would always be this. And I was young; I was pre-adolescent, uh-huh. and there would always be these scenes where you know, like after dinner, do you want to go to my cabin? And I just would think, why is this always a difficult conversation? <laughs> like, do you want to go? Like, or we could hang out over here. I it didn't. <laughs> Because because I was pre-sexual mm-hmm. myself, and so I just thought I had people hanging out in my room all the time. We weren't <laughs> having sex, and then I began to. Rem- I just remember the one time I thought, "Oh my God, they're all having sex." This is, uh, you know, and then I began to think it's the love boat, and we're only watching three couples. <laughs> we're watching hundreds of people go on, and they're all having sex in their rooms. And I remember it was really flooring me. Uh, you, <laughs> I I guess that. Uh, all the dirty parts um, actually turns out to be quite a few parts yeah. <laughs> of our lives that, that basically, in a sense, we tend to suppress even in our own lives. And I think that uh, reading a book like this is is tonic for us just to realize how important those things are to us even when we think they're not and we think we've grown up. Yeah, You don't grow up, do you? Um, Do you think men grow up? I don't think anyone grows up. I mean, I think that we, I mean, we get older, we we have more things in our brains. Mm-hmm. And I think that we teach ourselves that things in which we are interested or things which concern us or the questions that haunt us are not appropriate, at least for public speaking about. Mm-hmm. And so we stop speaking about it. And sex is a really easy one to bring up because, of course, we don't talk about sex, but... Um, I mean, the kind of everyday injustices of the world and um, the enormous questions that um, that occur to us just looking around at what is going on. I mean, I speak to you now and there's great flooding happening in a huge city in America, in Houston. And, um, you know, without going on a, a political rant or, a, or, or anything and all, all that can kind of place context and weight upon that, you can't see that happening and think, how can this be happening? How can it be? And, um, you know, we've learned that that is not the way to approach such things. <laughs> right? And that is not the front page of the New York Times doesn't say, can you believe it? Look, there's water all over this city. That's not the way. And... In fact, if that was a, if any public servant gave that statement, they would be mocked and, uh, you know, scorned for a lack of sensitivity and specificity to how you're supposed to react. But also, that's a really huge question: How can that happen? And that we have no um, really reasonable answer, for, I think, for the largest questions. And that's certainly, I mean, the Lemony Snicket books for me are about. Um, death and destruction and the the, the relentless uh, evil and mystery and bewilderment of the world. 
and that we are taught to stop worrying about those things. And we don't stop worrying about them. We just kind of stop having conversations about them for the most part. And that's astonishing to me. And I think that's, we're taught to grow up and you don't, you know, you can't believe it. So you're, uh, we shouldn't grow up in a sense. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, um, perhaps be better served. I think if I, (laughs) I think if I had the answer to what we as human beings ought to do, I would not have written a short novel about a young man's sex life. It would be probably a larger book. Uh, No, I I think. Even that I wouldn't be able to trim down to a reasonable size. uh, It's quite possible that everything that's in this book accounts for much of the 20th century. (laughs) And probably most of the 21st. Would you mind if we used your quote in our promotional material, sir? No, not at all. I think I think in fact that's actually true. <laughs> that that the 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 urgent drivers that drive the mindset be, behind sex are also the same urgent drivers that as we grow beyond our teen years drive us every other which way. I mean, these are this was a book about the bees that are always in every damn bonnet in the United States of America and the world. Yeah, I think certainly <laughs> so. I mean... Um, the relentless, ceaseless worries that get to us, the things that we cannot stop, the things is monkey mind. Yeah, and I think the idea that we want to... Um, we understand the need to fence in kind of pure sexual desire and mm-hmm. need for the purposes of having a civilized society... Um, but also that you that we can't deny them, and that that's a conundrum. A basic uh, oxymoron of human culture is the, the <laughs> thing. The emphasis on moron for sure. <laughs> the the thing which we desire the most is the thing which we uh, are least likely to put on display. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, we have elected a man who's been quite open about his uh, um, uh, sexually predatory behavior. Um, and how's that working out for us? <laughs> not great, I would say. <laughs> Again, I don't mean to get overly political, but I think I can say here, <laughs> I, well, I not think... great. That's my perspective. <laughs> I, I think, too, that uh, a look at Unfettered. This is a book that is unfettered. This is all the fetters are gone. You you defettered this book. <laughs> I do. I have a pile of fetter at home. <laughs> I guess so. So, um, was this was this a, a book fun to write compared to the Lemony Snake books? I mean, to my mind, I. The Lemony Snake books are, are are just a blast to read and a blast to write. And this is a blast to read, but I'm wondering, it's a different kind of blast to write. Um, it was, a, I mean, there were aspects of it that were challenging, but I, um, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I get to write what I want. And mm-hmm. so I write what delights me and what engages me. So it doesn't mean that every day I'm, you know, skipping around giggling about every single thing <laughs> that I do in my professional life. But um, if I find that I, that it's a chore to turn my mind to a story, then I, I am not interested in doing it. 
So, I, I mean, um, I know there are certainly plenty of writers who say, and now I have to churn this out, but I'm in a very enviable position of not having to do that. And so, um, yeah, it was a delight. I mean, all, all of my books have been a delight to write, frankly. You're in the enviable position of being able to see your work realized on Netflix, which is the Neplus Ultra of <laughs> author adaptation these days. It means we don't have to leave out three quarters of the book to put it on the screen. Talk about uh, that kind of uh, – that must be really fun. That must be the equivalent of – the happy parts of this book in a sense for a writer um it's very strange it's overall i would say a strangeness uh more than a delight there are aspects of it that are delightful mm -hmm. but it's just very strange um it's a lot of work to make something like a tv show or a film mm -hmm. a lot of people are working a lot of people that's one thing that must be really odd because you know you are lashed to your typewriter, your laptop, or wherever you are, all by your lonesome. Yeah, and even if you use the, the broadest gener uh, definition of the number of people who are concerned with the production of this book, right, as a physical mm -hmm. object and people who are promoting it, people who are deciding to publish it and things like that, you don't get anywhere near <laughs> the normal crew on a, on a particularly a high-budget uh, production and they're all working really hard and um, it's a it's also to the extent that they're all working on a vision that you came up with if it's an adaptation of your work is true but also when you go and see them they're not really concerned they're not thinking all the time well, oh my goodness we must stay true to this vision because they're working on their tiny little part and so that's what I just think is interesting is that I go to the set and there's someone spray painting a rock <laughs> over here, you know, and they have four other rocks that they have waiting, but this is the rock that fits most in this corner and they're spray painting it and then they're going to treat it with a thing and then they're going to get it a little bit wet so the light shines on it in exactly the right way. And, and oftentimes they're taking me through and then they say, oh, this is the guy who wrote the books. And they say like, oh, hey, but then they go right back <laughs> to what they're doing because they're really busy. They're doing their job. And it's very strange because um, it, I mean, the, the the kind of disconnect between it's all happening for you and yet none of it is happening for you, really. It's just a thing that they're doing. They're and, like a bunch of little gremlins working away inside your brain to make yeah. your brain come out. And of honestly, I mean, people have uh, asked me since the um, series was released and they're filming the next two seasons right now. Um, They've said to me, well, um, it must be really gratifying that the audiences like it so much. And it certainly is gratifying. But what was actually gratifying for me is all the people who work on things for a living who really liked it. All these people who said, I'm a, I do costumes in Vancouver. And 90% of the time, what I'm doing is choosing a beige sweater for someone to wear in a cop drama. And now I'm making these outrageous costumes and I'm so happy. I'm having so much fun. And that, to me, made me happy because I know when I'm excited about my own work and inspired by it, that that's a wonderful day. And to think about that that was possible for those people brings me delight. And it's almost more delight than the audience because I think well the audience is just watching something and if they don't like it they can watch something else but it, but for these people who have to do something like build a doorway or um, 
edit a music cue so it lines up with someone falling down the stairs or all these things that happen. Um, to see them feeling like it's a good thing that they get to work on is a nice feeling. Well, I think that that's what comes through in this book and in all of your work is how much fun you are having. And I think that ultimately will be what gets people to glue their eyes to the pages of an actual book or even on an e-reader if their eyes are terrible, as yours truly are. <clears throat> and to, you know, immerse themselves in that world because reading a book is can be more fun than a movie or any of that stuff. Yeah, and I think... Um, and it's I not... Mean, fun might not be it. exactly the right word, but that level of engagement and excitement for me is behind all literature and all worthwhile and good literature, certainly. And um, it's always really wonderful to meet other writers who are often tackling in fiction or nonfiction, you know, very serious and heady topics um, that are considered, you know, on another end of a spectrum from something like All the Dirty Parts, but to see them having so much fun, <laughs> to see them actually saying, you know, I got to interview this person from Wanda and they gave me the perfect thing to say that goes in this paragraph that makes this very passionate and serious case, but they can't it's like they can't escape the actual delight of the creation. And I think that's just what the, I mean, that's what creativity and creation is about, is about that kind of delight. And it's often, I, I just think I'm lucky enough to be mostly tackling subjects that can allow me to express my delight over it. And then there are many writers who can't go on the radio and say, oh, it's so much fun to write about <laughs> this genocide. Because they, of course, it's horrible, but there's, but the way you engage with it and the way you get excited by that is uh, undeniable. The new book by Daniel Handler is All the Dirty Parts. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Thank you for having me, sir. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.